Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. Um, So I have a question. How many of you think about being polite when you talk to your phone? Does anyone think about that? Oh, okay. We have about four. That's great. So I remember hearing this a few years ago when people were starting to use Siri and Alexa and that kind of thing more often. Um, I remember hearing that adults should pay attention to how we talk to those devices around our kids. Why is a great question. I'm glad you asked me that, Ryan. Um, We didn't even rehearse this. So the reason why, if you stop and think about it, it makes sense. As adults, we can distinguish between talking to a human being and talking to a phone. But kids who are learning how conversations work and how relationships work, it's not always that easy to make that distinction. So for us, when we talk to a phone, it's a tool. Right? We know that Siri exists for the sole purpose of serving my needs or more often my curiosity and my boredom. That's the only reason Siri exists. So since you don't say please and thank you to a vacuum cleaner, of course you wouldn't do that to your phone. But kids, it's not always that clear to distinguish between how they see us treating this program that you talk to and how you treat other people. It starts to affect how kids see other people in the world around them. And I actually wonder, I don't know about this, but I wonder if adults might be a little less immune to this phenomenon than we think. If we train our brains by always talking to these things we carry around with us as though there are servants existing to serve our needs, does that make it easier for us to start to see the rest of the world Like that, other people, other things exist to serve our needs. Now, most of us know that's not how we should view the world, right? Of course, we shouldn't treat other people like they're beneath us. But here's what I've noticed. It is a really common worldview that, like it or not, that is the way the world is set up. A lot of us assume there is some sort of natural structure of hierarchy to the universe, And so when you think of, like, our economy, at the top, you have the business owners and the executives, and at the bottom, you have, on a different level, all the ordinary employees. At the top of society, you have all the leaders, the well-educated, the people who are courageous and risk-takers, and they're on a different level than everyone else. So for someone to get to that higher level, to get wealthy, to innovate, to create new exciting things for the world, they need to have more wealth, more respect, and more power than the people below them. That's just the way the world works. Now, people of faith sometimes will take this idea a step further. We'll say that, yes, that's the way the world work, and it works, and it's not an accident. That's the way God ordained it to be. God created it to be like this structure of hierarchy. So for Christians who believe in this hierarchy, they go back to Genesis, and they'll say, look, the structure of the world that God originally created, it's something like this. At the very bottom, you have the earth, the natural resources, and those exist to be used. They exist to serve the purposes of all the other things above them. 
Now in Genesis, the center of the story is this guy, this man named Adam. And God creates Adam and puts him in Eden, this wonderful land, so that the land can serve him. And next, God creates the vegetation. Now the plants, they use some of the natural resources, but it's not for themselves. It's for the purpose of them being able to better serve the man. And then the plants are great, but then God and the man, they look and they say, look, this man could use a servant. He could use someone to help him out. And so then God creates all of the animals. And the animals are okay. They help, right? They help some. But God and the man, they're like, no, we can do better than this. So finally, God creates the woman. And now the man is happy. The man's got a good servant. And then all you've got to do is add God to the top of this structure. And here is the way the world works. Are you following me? Oh my gosh, some people love this and some people hate it. This is a really common view of Genesis in the Bible. This is just the way the world works. Now, the snake comes along and messes everything up, but before that, this is paradise. This is how it is meant to be. Things just need to accept their place, serve the things above them. Now, if this really was the way that God created the world, if it was, then it makes sense that people structure our society in the same kind of way. But this interpretation is all based on a really bad reading of Genesis. That's not what the story actually says, and we'll get to that. But even if we put Genesis aside, is this structure of hierarchy actually what the Bible teaches? Now, first we have to say, that the Bible was written in a very different world, a very different time. So of course, like most of history, it was a patriarchal society, and so there were the important men on top, and then all the other people fell in place below that. So there is no doubt that the biblical characters and the biblical authors, simply because of when they lived, they definitely had sexist ideas, misogynist, xenophobic ideas. There is no doubt that the people of the Bible had those ideas. And here is the amazing thing. Despite that, what we see throughout the Bible is that over and over again, God works against this system of hierarchy. People have their issues, but God is consistently against this idea that some people are lower, some people are less than others. Actually, what we find in the Bible is that it's the people on the bottom of society that others look down on. Those are the ones that God keeps lifting up in the story. God tells the people of Israel, do not forget to care for the poor, for the foreigners, for the widows and the orphans. Israel is judged as a nation, not just based on their faithfulness to God, but also their faithfulness to the people that are on the bottom of that social hierarchy. And then when you get to Jesus, he lives out this ethic. Just think of who Jesus hangs out with. Who is it that Jesus talks with and eats with and heals? He lifts up women and children when it was a time where it was very rare to do so. He lifts up Samaritans and tax collectors who all the other Jewish people hated. 
And then he lifts up people who are poor, people who are diseased and disabled and demon-possessed. So within the social structure, Jesus is constantly focusing on the last and the least. And that's what he says, too. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The Son of Man didn't come to be served by someone else. He came to serve. So Jesus flips this script of society, but he's not inventing something new. He's just living according to God's teaching that has been there all along, even back to those creation stories in Genesis. We just have to pay closer attention to what the text actually says. So this morning, I want to take a quick look at both stories of creation. Now let's pause here for a minute, because you may not have realized this, but at the very beginning of the Bible, right next to one another, are two different, distinct accounts of how God created the world. So the first creation story starts at the very beginning, and it goes through the first half of verse 4 in chapter 2. The first creation story is the one we know with the seven days, and it ends like this. God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Boom. End of story one. And then the next story. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plants of the field was yet in the earth. Now this is after chapter one, when all the plants were already made, and when no plants of the field was on the earth and no vegetation had sprung up. So in the first chapter, the first story, God already has made the plants, and then God makes the animals, and then last, God makes the human beings. In this second story of creation, at first, the earth is there, but there's nothing living, and then first, God creates the human being, and then creates the vegetation, and then the animals are last, and after that, God divides the humans into male and female. It just takes a close reading of the text to see this. The two creation stories tell things differently. And the authors even use different names for God. You can see it in here in this transition. The first one, it's always Elohim, which is God in English. And then it all of a sudden switches to Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim. Now, it's not a big deal. It just means that the two different traditions that these stories came from decided to use two different titles for God. The differences in these two stories are only a problem if we're trying to make Genesis fit into something that it's not. They are only a problem if we're trying to make Genesis this literal scientific account of history. And that's simply not why God inspired these stories. I mean, you hear people say this a lot, that Genesis gets the science wrong. And that's just not true. Genesis was not interested in answering scientific questions. That was not the purpose. It was always meant to show us these deeper truths about God and deeper truths about our place in the world. And if we look at both of these stories, we see that they show us that all of the living things around us, they're meant to be our siblings, not our servants. So the first creation story. There's seven days, and they're not seven literal days, right? There are seven periods, seven sections of creation. And then on the seventh day, God rests. But before that, the first six days are divided up into these three very neat 
sections. I'm going to use some stories, some images from the cartoonist Bible. It's this pastor who does all these cartoon depictions of scripture, and he stays very faithful to the text, which is a rare thing. So in the first three days of creation, God creates the landscapes of the world. And then the next three days, God fills in each of those landscapes. So day one, we have day and night. God creates light, separates it from the darkness, and so there's day and night. That's the first landscape. And then on day four, after the next two landscapes, God fills this in with the sun and the moon and the stars. You get it? It's very neat. It makes sense. And then on day two, God creates this second landscape. It's the sky and it's the sea below that. And then on day five, God fills this in with the birds up above and all of the sea creatures and fish down below. On day three, God creates the last landscape, which is the dry land. So on day six, God fills all that stuff in with vegetation and with animals, and then finally humans are last. By the way, we sometimes skip over this detail. In chapter one of Genesis, when God creates human beings, it specifically says that they are made male and female, both at the same time, equally made in the image and likeness of God. And then on day seven, God rests. Now notice something about this picture, this story. Human beings are not really the center of it. Everything has its part, its role to play in this greater whole. It's more like God creates this work of art and we get to be a part of it alongside everything else. And then God gives these assignments, not just to us, but to all the creatures. God tells the birds and the fish and the animals and the humans, be fruitful and multiply. It's your turn to go and fill the earth with life. Now think about this, why? God could have just created a full earth. God created everything else. Instead, God chooses not to do that. God says, all right, I've created enough, now I've got some coworkers. Now I've got some partners, now it's your turn. Let's finish this together. And so they do. And then human beings were given this extra responsibility. We're told that we are to have dominion over all life. Now, Pastor Doug talked about this word dominion last week. It does not mean that we get to do whatever we want with this stuff. It's a responsibility to be stewards over something that doesn't belong to us. It's the story says, look, all of this is God's. God made it. God loves it. Now it is your job to take good care of it. Do you see how drastically different this picture of the world is than that pyramid that we started with? That is not the picture we actually get in Genesis. This is more like God is this parent who gives everything life, and then God tells us, hey kids, take care of your brothers and sisters. Take care of your siblings. I love all of you. The world is filled with our siblings, not with our servants. So that's all the first story of creation. Let's look at the second one. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, notice this one doesn't give much detail about how that stuff was made. It's just concerned about the role of life. And when God created all that stuff, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and listen to this, 
and there was no one to till the ground. Isn't that an interesting detail? There's no life yet, there's no plants, and why are there no plants? Because there's no one there to till the soil. It's like God has this vision of a beautiful, lush world, and God doesn't want to make the plants on their own. Because on their own, it'll be chaos. On their own, there's no one to care for them. So God wants someone to till the soil, to cultivate the plants. So what is God after? A gardener. God wants to make a gardener. And since God wants to make a gardener to take care of the earth, God makes this creature out of earth. Then the Lord God formed man, this is the NRSV translation, man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now we miss this in English, but in Hebrew this verse is a play on words. Most translations say formed man from the dust or formed Adam from the dust. And so we read this and we think, okay, the first person was this man named Adam. But in Hebrew, it actually says this. Then the Lord God formed Adam from the Adama and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the Adam became a living being. And Adama means earth. It literally just says, God made this earth creature from the earth, the Adam from the Adama. It's not a literal name of a man, it's a title for a human being, an earth creature. So now there's a gardener, and God creates the garden next in the story. God makes the trees grow, and the text says that they are beautiful to the sight, and they're good for food. And then God gives this earth creature, the human, a job. Then the Lord God took the human and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To till it and to keep it. So what's the purpose of human beings in Genesis 2? They're earth creatures formed from the earth in order to take care of the earth. That is their main purpose. But then we find out creation isn't quite done yet. So then the Lord God said, it is not good that the human should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Now let's talk about the Hebrew of this verse. The NRSV translates this last part, a helper as his partner. All of that in Hebrew is one word, the word azer. Now men throughout history have taken some liberties here because azer does not mean servant. God did not create human as a, the woman as a lower creature to serve the needs of a man, even though a lot of men throughout history have said, yes, that's exactly what God did. There are a lot of times where this word helper, Azair, is used in the Bible, and about 90% of the time, it's talking about God. God is the helper to the people. So it shows up in the Psalms like this. Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my Azair, my helper. But surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So God helps us, and that doesn't make God our servant. It doesn't make God lower than us. Are you with me? So the human being doesn't need a servant. The human being needs a partner, someone to share in this life and share in this calling. So here's how this plays out. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to call, fall upon the human, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed it up with a place of flesh. Although rib here can also be translated as side, which is a better translation. So it actually says, and the side that the Lord God had taken from the human, he made into a woman and brought her back to the human. And then check out what the earth creature says. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called Isha, woman, for out of Ish, this one was taken. Now in English, you miss this because Adam and Ish are both translated as man, but they're different words. This is the first time that we see woman and man come up. Before that, it's all this Adam, this earth creature. And then God splits the creature into two new things, the Ish and the Isha, the man and the woman. So actually, when you look at this in Hebrew, it's like the first story again. Both man and woman are created at the same time, made to be equal partners. And what's their calling? Their calling is to be good gardeners, taking care of the world. You see, all of this, it's not that hierarchy. It's about this shared calling as one human family. It is not good for us to be alone because we need each other, sure, but also because the world needs us. The world needs us to be partners and care for creation. I mean, especially with climate change and all of this going on right now, it is easy for people to get on board with, yes, we need to care for the planet because otherwise it won't serve us well. And that's true, but that's not actually the calling according to the Bible. The deeper calling is that we're called to care for this world because God loves it, all of it. God wants us to take good care of it. This month we're preaching about stewardship. So each week we're focusing on a different dimension of what it means to be good stewards. But this is where it all starts. So I hope in the next couple weeks as we keep thinking about this idea that we can ask ourselves that question. How do we do it? How do we work as good gardeners? How can we be good caretakers, good stewards of this beautiful world that God has put us in?